0: Welcome to the official SASTA podcast brought to you by Jason Lemkin, founder at SASTA and at JasonLK on Twitter, and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC at H Stebbings on Snapchat. Now, today's show is the type of show that I really love, super analytical, super tactical, and some crucial takeaways. Therefore, joining me in the hot seat today, I'm delighted to welcome Russ Hurl, head of sales at DataHug, backed by the likes of DFJ and Salesforce. And DataHug is a pipeline management and forecast solution within Salesforce and prior to DataHug, Russ was the VP of sales at Double Dutch where he built a sales machine that delivered over 1,500 new customer wins and took the business from naught to over 20 million ARR in less than three years. He really is a true thought leader in sales optimization and selling velocity and I'm really excited to have him on the show. So I'm going to pass over the mic to the main man, Russ Hurl, head of sales at DataHug. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Russ, such a pleasure to have you on the official SaaS podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It's great to be with you, Harry. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, this interview is actually rather personal for me. As I remember my first ever internship, I had to learn how to use and optimize DataHug. So, so this one's a special one. But I want to hear how you became VP of Sales at DataHug and what the backstory
1: is for you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so I came to DataHug uh, not that long ago from a customer of DataHug called Double Dutch, and we had raised a, a lot of money, uh, built a very strong sales team there, went from basically zero to $20 million ARR in less than three years. You know, what we noticed over the course of, you know, three or three years or so was that um, our win rates just really weren't uh, where they needed to be. And so uh, we actually signed up with DataHug at that time in order to really optimize uh, the bottom of the funnel, the opportunity management process. And so... Ultimately, we led. Uh, that led us to improving our win rates by about 21 percent. And I felt that uh, you know DataHug really had a transform, transfer, uh, transformative solution. So, decided to uh, come over here as a VP of sales.
0: And as VP of sales, you know, you're, you're a leader in the sales team at DataHug. So, what makes a great SaaS leader for you? Is are there any kind of characteristics that you think symbolizes that great SaaS leader?
1: Yeah, you know, um, there's both an art and a science to be uh, to being a great uh, SaaS sales leader. I think if you're interviewing a sales manager and they're able to articulate the science piece of it, in particular, the data science piece of running an effective sales team, and they don't just dwell upon kind of the art of coaching. Um, that's a, a surefire signal that you're dealing with someone who is is capable of hitting the marks and being successful as as a sales leader within a SaaS company. And so some of the things that I always look for when I'm hiring sales managers, you know, I'm looking to see, do they really understand you know how to calculate sa- sales velocity? You know, can they measure the throughput of a sales engine and do they understand the, the four key variables that you would want to look at? in order to measure, you know, how well you're doing. And that's, you know, the number of opportunities in the top of the funnel, you know, what your win rate is, you know, what your you know, average deal size is and what your cycle time is. Um, if you're talking with a sales leader who really doesn't understand, those are, frankly, can't even um, answer, you know, what is your win rate or what has your win rates been historically? That's usually when you know you're dealing with uh, potentially a, a BS artist. Mm-hmm. And how, how did you come
0: to develop this pattern recognition when interviewing sales candidates? Did it come to you immediately or, or did it come over time?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it really um, has evolved over a period of you know probably five or six years. Um, we've we've seen a, a, a significant proliferation in the number of sales tools that allow us to more accurately and effectively measure each stage of the proverbial funnel and so what that's allowed us to do is become much more data-driven as an occupation. You have, you know, basically a bifurcation of sales leaders who come from kind of the old school, which was all about gut feel and instinct um, and, you know, salespeople who would, you know, have, you know, the proverbial happy ears. And it's really evolved, you know, more and more towards, you know, inside sales, high-velocity selling. Uh, even on the enterprise side, you see many, many more inside sales tools and techniques being applied to enterprise selling. And that in in total has allowed us to measure each one of those stages much more effectively. And so if you come from the the school of data-driven or data um, science-related sales management, you're going to be using some of those tools and you're going to understand the you know how to instrument a sales machine you know at each step of the process from you know above the funnel, like what you're putting into the top of the funnel to you know the actual top of the funnel work that's being done by you know sales development or marketing to you know the bottom of the funnel work that's being done by your account executives to close close those deals. So it's really something that has evolved over the period of of several years. And um, I think so, sales is actually becoming even more data driven And those sales managers and sales, you know, sales VPs who aren't able to. Um, you know, really adapt to that, you know, I, I feel like they're, they're going to be pushed to the wayside. And we recently had John Miller from Engagio
0: on the show. And he said uh-huh. that we'd recently seen ABM account-based marketing and account-based sales development intertwined together. And we'll see uh, account-based everything was his words. Do you think that we will continue to see the integration of the two and the, the kind of merger of, of sales and marketing together as one?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm a huge fan of John. I think he's done amazing work uh, at Marketo and then also at, at Engageo. I think what you're seeing is um, you're seeing a, a proliferation of set sales tools all looking to carve out some sort of category, some sort of moniker uh, to differentiate themselves. I think at the end of the day, um, no matter what you call you know, account based selling or account based marketing, the fundamentals are are very much similar to what they have always been. If you are, you know, if you've got a named account list and you're trying to penetrate a list of, I don't say 100 companies, even before the the moniker of account based marketing or account based selling existed, you are probably going to be taking a pretty thoughtful approach to you know, how you multiple thread within those accounts. I, I'm not so sold on on the idea that there. There's anything new there. I, I, I do think that marketers in particular have, have kind of begun, begun to realize that they need to participate uh, along with the sales team in greater alignment at uh, additional phases of the, the, the journey, so to speak. Um, so I think that's probably a little bit new, but the concept of SDRs or account executives uh, really looking thoughtfully at accounts and trying to map out who's who. Uh, or charting it out. That's nothing new. That's been around for a long time. But what is new there is the active participation and collaboration between sales and marketing. And I think that's a good thing.
0: And, and, and then going back to the hiring, where we discovered how to spot the BS and the facade of someone who doesn't know, and then data-driven salespeople that do, you, you do have a wealth of experience also in optimizing and interacting with your team. So I want to hear how the best leaders run their their reps one-on-ones. How do SaaS leaders do that?
1: Well, let me take you through how most leaders who come from kind of the old world of sales leadership might run a one-on-one. They're going to look at the pipeline in Salesforce they're going to ask the same three or four questions that's related to the forecast. You know, they're going to ask questions pertaining to like, when's our next meeting? When's the last time you heard from them? They're going to try to ascertain from the opportunity management fields that you know may or may not be populated by the sales rep. Cause we, we all know that sales reps are uh, not always that diligent about updating uh, Salesforce. They're going to try to understand what's really going on here. And so they're going to be using that gut feel, that intuition, uh, years of experience to try to ascertain, like, is this deal actually coming in? And so in effect, what happens, you know, many of the one-on-ones that are being run by that kind of old school of sales leader are fairly, um, pretty much in, in interrogation. And so they're asking those same questions. And, and inevitably what happens is that, you know, that relationship between the manager and the sales rep is not really optimized, so that's what it's like if you're kind of an old school sales leader. If you're more of a new new school sales leader, you should already know the answers to a lot of those questions. You should understand the the you know, objective health of all of those opportunities. In fact, that's one of the things that my company DataHug helps with is providing you know, an engagement score uh, that measures all the interactions between the rep and all the prospects, uh, all the stakeholders on the opportunity. Those types of coaching sessions are much more consultative and much more assistive to the rep. Where so if you see that there's a next meeting uh, that's been booked, and you know the health of the opportunity, uh, there's, it's a it's a healthy opportunity. Then you can be much more collaborative with that that sales rep, as opposed to you know really just kind of collecting uh, information and ensuring compliance to a CRM process. And that's not to say that sales methodologies, whether it's you know CEB Challenger. Um Taz Group or you know Miller Hyman or Sandler. you know any of those methodologies aren't valid and uh, they definitely are. they should should definitely be followed., uh, but I think um, the new school sales leader is using some more objective data to understand the health of the opportunity so that they can coach the reps better, uh, and then they can also forecast their book of business much more accurately.
0: Where do you find that most of your sales reps need coaching or need guidance in some way? Is there a common thread that they often pull on for you?
1: Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest area um, that sales reps uh, struggle with is multiple threading opportunities. I think if you ask any sales leader, you know, what's the what's the one or two things that just really um, chafe your skin when it comes to, you know, things that reps aren't doing? It's one of those is going to be, you know, my reps are single threaded within their opportunities. And it's really difficult to empower and encourage your reps to, in some cases, maybe go around someone who they feel is a champion, but it's really just not getting it done for them to go to the other you know, three, four five stakeholders that they need to engage in order to develop a sufficient amount of momentum to get that deal done. And so I think sales leaders really struggle with getting you know, sales reps to be comfortable with what I call really that productive conflict or the productive tension that needs to exist within a deal cycle in in order to move that deal ahead. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that that I know that I've always historically was challenged with uh, when I'm I'm coaching uh, my sales reps. And one element Jason
0: Lemkin always talks about, which kind of reverts back to that productive tension, is he says hire two sales reps at the same time to create that competitive element. And I'm always intrigued then, how do you you like to create a competitive element within your sales teams without potentially uh, disincentivizing the loser and making them feel much worse about themselves?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's all, it, there's two things there. One, and and a lot of sales leaders are already doing this. It's it's about transparency and transparency in the sense that um, you have, you know, dashboards with current status um, results, leaderboard results for every, every key metric that matters for your business. But some of the key metrics that matters for every business are those four variables I mentioned earlier, number of deals, win rates, you know, cycle time, and then, you know, average deal size or ECV. So making sure that, Everyone knows where everyone stands and, you know, sales reps, as we know, are are inherently competitive. Um, And so if they see themselves, you know, at the middle or bottom of the pack, they're going to try to, you know, climb up to the top of the leaderboard, but they may not know exactly how to get there. And so that's where the coaching comes in. Um, and the other thing to, to really inspire competitiveness that I've implemented over the years is I've, I've actually done a lot of research into sibling rivalry. You know, I, I wanted to answer the question, why is it that you know, certain twins or siblings are incredibly competitive with one another and really successful competing with the external environment? So you look at people like you know, football players like Rondé and Tiki Barber, or you might look at um, you know, Venus and Serena Williams. And you wonder like is this nature or nurture? And as it turns out, what you can do to inspire your sales team in order to compete more effectively externally as well as internally is you can you can as Jason said, hire in twos. And what you can do is you can uh, basically uh, run the buddy system, where the two reps are competing with the rest of the team, uh, but they're also competing with one another. Um, and so you basically structure a comp system, a compensation plan where a portion of their monthly or quarterly compensation is tied to how they do as a tandem. And I've seen that to be extremely effective, not only in kind of creating team cohesiveness, but also um, watching those two individuals who are paired up compete with the external team as well as with each other. And that has the tendency of just like what you've seen with really high performing tandems like Venus and Serena Williams in tennis, you see them rise to the occasion. They tend to do a lot better. Uh, than they would if they were just competing um, separately. Um, so I've seen that to be extremely effective. And what you would do in that type of a system is at the end of the month or the, whatever the period is, you would actually switch up the tandems. So if you got a sales team of six, you know you might be paired with someone who might be pulling you down this month, but you know that next month you're going to be paired with someone different. And that has the effect of giving you something to look forward to if things aren't quite going well with your, your teammate that particular month so you know i've tried some pretty out of the box things in order to to inspire competition and quite frankly i've done that as a way to minimize the burden on me as a VP of sales so if you can let the organizational structure if you can let the comp system do a lot of the heavy lifting you'll be surprised how much more you can do as a sales leader how many more heads you can take on you know conventional wisdom says that you should only really have i don't know 7 to 10 uh, direct reports if you're a frontline sales manager well at uh, at my last company Double Dutch I was able to push that all the way up to north of 20 uh, just because I was able to, through an or- a very thoughtful organizational design and compensation structure, allow those systems to do a lot of the heavy lifting for me. And have
0: you had any other uh, really interesting takeaways that you maybe didn't expect from A-B testing on inspiring competition within your sales team? Has there been any other things that you didn't expect to work but have turned out to be rather effective?
1: Yeah, well... I think it's, it's interesting, especially with the millennials. I hate to use the term millennials. Everyone's talking about millennials as <laughs> a, like the boogeyman. Um, and I just think they're normal people like everyone else. Um, you look at a lot of the, the, the younger sales, sales professionals that are coming into our, our sales teams and a lot of them are very reticent to making phone calls and you know selling is really all about having a conversation it's you know upsetting the homeostasis whatever you want to call it in terms of you know getting people to recognize that their current situation is not you know acceptable for them any longer and they need a solution or to fix that i did some a b testing around um here actually at datahug where when i came in we had a group of sdrs who were predominantly sending emails all day um and effectively they were behaving as marketing nurture machines and I asked the question in my head: Well, why do we have these really talented and smart people sending emails all day when I really could just be using, you know, Marketo for that? Um, I could automate a lot of that work, or I could use Outreach or any number of sales tools um, that have proliferated over the last three or four years. And so I had, I had I had two groups: I had a group that was still doing it the way they had been doing it with with the you know outbound you using emails, and then I had a different group who was just going to be compensated on vocal activities, making calls, you know, leaving voicemails, speaking to people. Of course, the first group that was sending emails was adamant that that was the best way. The, the group that was making the phone calls was very skeptical. You know, They thought there was no way that, you know, because no one picks up my calls, no one ever returns my phone calls, so therefore that, that modality must be you know, completely irrelevant these days. Well, as it turns out, equally talented group of individuals, the A was the, was the emailing, the B was the calling. The young professionals that were doing the calling had a two and a half times greater result than the ones doing the emailing all day. And so I kind of already knew that, but I I used that experiment, that A-B test, in order to really prove a point um, and get buy-in from my team, who was adamant that they just really didn't want to get on the phone because they thought it wasn't effective.
0: And then I want to dive into the 60-second SAS now, so it's a quick fire round, uh, a minute per answer. How does that sound? That sounds great. So in addition to Jason and Aaron's new book, what else should sales leaders sorry, be buying?
1: There are a lot of great books out there. And I've read Jason and Aaron's book, and I think it's fantastic. Um, I think something that's a little bit outside of the, the realm of selling um, is a book called The Goal, uh, which is by Eli Goldratt. It's kind of requisite reading for anyone who gets an MBA. So if there are any sales leaders who you know are you know, aspiring to go and get their MBA or anyone who has their MBA, they've probably read this book. And it's uh, it's really all about how do you instrument a process in order to maximize the velocity of that. So it takes um, uh, anecdotes from the world of manufacturing, from Kanban, from you know Tizen, from you know Deming principles, in, in order to apply it to any type of organization. And you can absolutely apply that to the selling sales engine that you're looking to set up. So to be able to know what your velocity and what your throughput is. Uh, is absolutely critical for you to be able to identify where the bottlenecks are in your process, and that bottleneck could be, well, hey, we're just not getting enough data points, enough you know, contacts and leads put into the top of the funnel, or it could be, hey, my call to conversation rate or my conversation to demo rate is is not really where it needs to be, and until you can identify where those bottlenecks are, you're not really going to be able to subordinate any other resources to those those so-called constraints. And so that book, I think if you, you read it from front to cover, you'll get a lot of great ideas in terms of how to successfully instrument a sales engine. Your biggest opportunity is improving pipeline velocity. Uh, that's a great question. I think the, the biggest opportunity is uh, opportunity management. Uh, everyone wants to talk about how do I get more opportunities into the top of the funnel? And that's important, too. Um, but if you if you look at what's going on, especially in the SaaS world, resources are, are harder to come by. Money isn't flowing from VCs as much as it was in the last few years, and investors and board members are, you know, really asking CEOs and VPs of sales to do more with what they've got. And I think we've we've invested in a lot of these tools in order to get more more opportunities in the top of the funnel. But there's really been a significant underinvestment in. You know, what happens once an opportunity is created to the time that the opportunity is clo- hopefully closed one. So I think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, gut instinct there that can be automated. Um, so I think there's, that's where account based selling, I think really has, has a, a significant opportunity to make an impact. That's where a place like data hug makes an impact. It's providing objective data to understand the health of your opportunities so that you don't, you know, misforecast your business. And so I think really looking at opportunity management um, you know, and getting more disciplined about it, not in terms of like, hey, you're not filling out the next steps field, um, that, that's not really that instructive. Um, but really understanding, are we properly multi- multiple-threaded within this opportunity? You know, Are we talking to all the stakeholders? Do we know who the mobilizer is, to use the term from CEB? These are things that sales leaders um, haven't, by and large, thought a lot about in the last several years because... You know, business has been pretty good. They've had a lot of opportunities in the top of the funnel and they can afford to make mistakes. But a lot of businesses aren't, aren't in that position anymore. They can't afford the waste that comes with, you know, just over hiring on SDRs and, and, you know, and then basically just running, you know, playing the, the, the averages and building a business that way.
0: And then what are the biggest mistakes that people make then in pipeline velocity
1: Yeah, I think it really just goes back to an over-reliance on, you know, putting a a ton of stuff into the top of the funnel. Uh, Don't get me wrong. If you're running a SaaS business and you've got, you know, an ACV between, you know, five and 50K, your AEs are going to need to have, you know, going into the beginning of the month, anywhere between 20 and 30 opportunities in their pipeline with a close date of that month. So they still need to have a healthy pipeline of opportunities. I think one of the things that's not happening, by and large, is consistent communication, kind of intra sales cycle communication, but you know between the time the opportunity is created and the time that it's closed. One, you know, basically reps will run a first meeting. They might have a demo that they thought went pretty successfully. Maybe they get a next meeting on the calendar, but then they go two weeks without even communicating. And of course, you know, time kills all deals. And what happens over the course of two weeks is your competitors potentially can get into that account. And so it's just a, a kind of a lack of a, an early warning system, I guess I would say, um, to let deal to let reps and their managers know that deals might be slipping. And so you've put a lot of effort and a lot of money into to marketing and sales development uh, to try to get those opportunities. And then, you know, unfortunately, because there isn't sufficient visibility to the health of those opportunities, a lot of them just fall by the wayside or even worse yet, competitors move in and you lose the deal altogether.
0: And I'm intrigued what you said there about opportunities slipping away from reps. How do you as the sales leader then interact with the rep and try and encourage them to not lose sight of the end goal?
1: Well, that, that's a really good question. Um, the first thing as a sales leader that I do is, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, what's the momentum on this deal? You know, I can look at all the process to close fields, which I expect them to complete on a, you know, an update on a weekly basis. And that's going to give me half the picture of what's really going on. The other half of the picture is is kind of in a blind spot somewhere. It's it's the momentum. It's the health of that opportunity. Um, as measured by the back and forth communication between the rep and their prospects. And so, you know, one of the things that I do really to encourage the reps to, to work towards that goal of, of, you know, winning that deal is I'm trying to push them out of their comfort zone a little bit in terms of communicating with more stakeholders, because that goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about one of the, you know, the biggest challenges that we face is just single threaded opportunities. If I can encourage them uh, if I can help them and lead by example in some cases where, you know, I, I can um, work on the messaging with them so that they can feel comfortable, you know, reaching out to someone else that they haven't spoken to before at that account, then we we can move closer to to the goals that, we, that we're trying to hit.
0: Well, Russ, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. It really has been phenomenal to break down your sales cycle and reveal how you really maximize your sales reps. So thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Harry. Appreciate it and
0: try again what a fantastic deep dive that was and a huge hand to russ for giving up his time today to be on the show and if you'd like more sasta content then you can head over to sasta.com where you can find a whole host of SAS content or you can follow jason on twitter at JasonLK or me on snapchat at HStebbings with two b's as always we so appreciate your support and i'm very excited to bring you the next episode on friday stay tuned